invite you to turn with me, please, to Romans in chapter 14. I'm going to read a couple of verses. I'm not going to expound this section. I'm using this as a launching pad, but it, uh, I want to explain the reason why it is such an appropriate launch spot. Romans in chapter 14. Then I'm going to explain how this kind of sermon came about, since it's obvious a standalone and I, there's been some providence of God that's been evident. There's always the providence of God, but uh, some ways in which uh, that's been uh, reaffirmed for me. But here we are in Romans in chapter 14. Now, when you would, uh, if you look at Romans 14, you can see that uh, there is a subject that's coming up at the beginning of the first verse in chapter 14. Where Paul says, now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Where Paul goes with this is to address a problem that was not unique to the church in Rome. If you're familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, you know that he had to deal with a a similar problem in chapters 8 and 9 and 10 in that chapter. And it was this, that in a congregation which is diverse, especially diverse in terms of converted Jews, converted Gentiles, and, and the variations within those two groupings, that inevitably there would be some conflict that would arise, particularly with regard to uh, one's diet, uh, one's daily habits. For example, in this case, you would have had Jewish believers who have come out of a rigorous uh, law-keeping culture, experience. They had dietary laws. Well, you had Gentiles who came out of kind of a free-spirited, open um, market, as it were, in the, with regard to food, they would have thought nothing uh, about going to the market and buying some fresh meat, and it would have been meat that probably in many cases would have been meat that had been part of an offering up to some god, and this was, uh, this was the extra meat and that kind of thing. And then the apostle addresses it with... Uh, there are two basic categories in the way that they came at the problem. There were those who he refers to as weak, and then those who were strong. We don't want to make more of this than we should. He's not saying those who are more spiritual and those who are less spiritual. He's using these terms in relation to information, knowledge. The weak have limited knowledge. They don't have the right information. They get a wrong knowledge and maybe a little bit of right knowledge. The strong would be those who were well-informed biblically. The weak were not well-informed biblically. So therefore, Paul comes at this by saying immediately, listen, you who are well-informed in the scriptures and understand your freedom to eat all things, there are no dietary restrictions. But be mindful of the fact that there are some in the congregation who are not where you are in terms of what they know, what they can and can't do. And every believer is to act upon his or her informed conscience. This is the ideal. An informed conscience, and you have a right understanding of what God has revealed, and you're acting in faith in response to that. Well, therefore, he says, and if you want to look at verse 12 of chapter 14, So then, each one of us shall give account of himself to God. 
So Paul brings out one of his heavy weapons here that, wait, after all is said and done, whether weak or whether strong, we've got to answer to the Lord. And then in verse 13, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. So what he is saying is that to the strong believer, that is the one who is well-informed, be careful what you do with your freedom. Don't let it become the occasion where a weaker one or one who doesn't have the right biblical knowledge on the subject, that they could be caused to do something that would violate their conscience. And therefore, they would then act in unbelief. You don't want to contribute to the uh, unbelief of another believer. That's essentially what stumbling is. And it's a metaphor to describe being caught in a trap, tripping over something, being caught, and to be caught in a moment where you are, rather than functioning, thinking, living out of belief, confidence in God's word, you're acting out of the contrary, an opinion or rebellion, anger, and a mix of those things. Then in verse 21, you can see it again. It is good, chapter 14, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. So my reason for extracting this, I'm trying to do justice to the passage, is to show that there is a danger that we could cause another believer by something that we do to cause them to act in the wrong way and to fall into the pit of unbelief. Now, how did this uh, sermon uh, come about? Well, it it happened this way. I've been studying with the classes uh, in Sunday school and Monday mornings. We've been studying the Reformation. And we've been going through the book. We did go through the book, The Unquenchable Flame by Michael Reeves. And there is a box on Zwingli, there is a box on Luther, there is a box on Calvin. When I say a box, that is the book is written in a way that as the narrative and the storyline moves along, you get a kind of a pause button in a box. And there was one with regard to Martin Luther, which I already knew about, but it just brought it back home in kind of a brutal way as to some of the things that Martin Luther said about the Jews. And also, as we'll see, I'll speak to this a little later, Calvin and a participation that he had in a what's notorious, people who are anti-Calvin, anti-Christian, they like to pick that story up and use it as a weapon against the credibility of Calvin. And Zwingli as well, that's another story. All right, so anyway, so I got to working through this and studying it, and I happened to have been reading a, uh, an article. I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal, an opinion page, probably the best opinion page in the <laughs> paper in the United States, and I was reading it, and I noticed the reference to Jonathan Edwards and his slaves, at at least six slaves, house slave, outside slave, and one which seems to have had for quite a long duration, Jonathan Edwards. Now, That may not reach up and slap you, but if you have any acquaintance with um, church history, church history in America, you know that Jonathan Edwards is way up there and put on a pedestal by many in terms of his his intellect, his theological acumen, 
He is a philosopher and just a brilliant theologian and made an enormous contribution to Christianity, well, in America and around the world. But he had slaves. So I'm, I'm curious now. All right, I've got some things that are intersecting. And I use my doing this for the sake of the teens to try to give them an example of the right use of a smartphone. Um, that I had my f- I had my phone right there with me while I was reading the article in the Wall Street Journal, and I had these in- this intersection of these individuals, and so I, s- I picked up my phone and you know I punched it, and held it down, and then Siri just magically I've not seen her, but she talks to me through that dark screen, and she- and I say to her, Jonathan Edwards and slaves. And then the next thing I knew, I was listening to maybe about an eight-minute presentation. It was a Q&A time with John Piper. And I count on John Piper uh, for dealing with a lot of things. And so his response to that Jonathan Edwards and the slaves issue came up. And he had several, I thought, really helpful points. It wasn't, he didn't expand them, just stated them. I said, I'm on to something here. I'm going to take this and... I'm going to work it and shape it, and this is the outcome of that. So I want to give credit to him, credit is due. Uh, a couple of three of these uh, statements here I've lifted and adapted from what Piper said, and then I added some others. Now, I'm not saying that I added the others because I thought Piper's weren't really good enough. That's no one saying that. But there were some other angles that uh, came to mind that I thought might be helpful and for some personal reasons. And another factor that I want to mention is to... This is an introduction to the introduction. Another factor that came up was that it so happened that I presented some of this in a very uh, rough elementary form in a Sunday school class, and I had a member of my family in the class, just really unusual, member of my family in the class that day, a few weeks back, and this really hit home. We, we have a connection on this issue big time through decades of life of someone in our family who has been used as the occasion for an excuse uh, for, well, I'll explain that in a minute, but anyway, a stumbling block, shall we leave it at that. Now, I want to say one other thing. I see some youth here. Look here, one, two, three, four, five young ladies over here, and I see some other young people scattered around. I want to dedicate this especially to you. Others are going to listen in and benefit, I hope, from it. I wish that I had heard when I was 14, 15, 16, 17, that range, I wish that I had heard someone unfold, unpack this truth that I'm going to bring to you. It, it would have helped me. And uh, so, Eric, I'm putting you on notice that uh, if you could be my surrogate and pass along a form of this to the youth, because I guarantee you they will need it in the decades ahead. All right, with that said, let's go to what I wish to uh, lay before you. I have three, four opening statements that serve as the real introduction to this. And the first is that I just need to express this terminology here, feet of clay. And that I took this right out of the dictionary, which says human flaws or shortcomings, especially in a great or idealized person. Now, I took that and I 
created a homemade definition, put it this way. It's finding in a person whom we admire or respect a character or behavioral flaw that can cause us to stumble by making wrong decisions, an obstacle to unbelief. That is, we can, we, the one caused to stumble, can make wrong decisions based upon a disappointment that we're experiencing in response to the behavior, the life of someone else. Second thing is that the path of life is filled with potential stumbling blocks. Oh, is it ever? Family, friends, leaders, anyone who is a descendant of Adam. I think that covers all the bases. That this, these can be the very ripe sources. Let me mention one. I know a man who attends a very liberal church. He grew up in a fundamental Christian church. He claims that the reason for having switched his allegiance from conservative Christianity to liberalism is based on a family member and pastor who was considered by him to have feet of clay. This man was re- the, the, the man who had feet of clay, revered, respected, and spoken well of in public. But in his family connections and life, it was not immorality, but there was something conspicuous that caused this other family member, I would say, to stumble. Now, Christian history offers a long list of examples. And here's how I want to get back to the Reformation. You may not be aware of this, and I've mentioned already some the, the Reformers, but I want to give you some specifics. This came about as, in a fresh way, looking at Martin Luther and the Jews. In his classic book, do, do I need to introduce Martin Luther to you? All right, I think we should be together on how he's obviously revered in the history of the church as a great Reformer. In his classic book, I'm reading from um, Erwin Lutzer's book, Rescuing the Gospel. In his classic book, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, William Shire calls Luther a, quote, savage anti-Semite because he called the Jews venomous, bitter worms, and disgusting vermin. In 1543, near the end of his life, Luther wrote three tracts against the Jews in which he said, quote, The Jews are a base, whoring people, that is, no people of God, and their boast of lineage, circumcision, and law must be accounted as filth. The Jews are full of the devil's feces, which they wallow in like swine. Their synagogue is an incorrigible whore and an evil slut. Yes, is right. This worked its way through German history down to the Third Reich, these comments, used by the Nazis in their great parades at Nuremberg. These words and others were in a glass case for all to see, or at at least to know they were there, as representing something of the virtue of the German people in the way, of course, 
Hitler and the Nazis used these comments as a race-based kind of hatred. This was not Luther's. His was religious-based. Now, I'm not saying that that made it all nice, but it was a difference. He wasn't anti-Semitic, and that is against the Jews because just they were Jews. Now, this purpose tonight is not to explain Luther in this. Uh, We worked on that in our classes and going through uh, the issues related to Luther. And there there are mitigating circumstances, some, and to help us to understand. But this this is not Christian. This is not good. Oh, that he had not said these things. Feet of clay. Feet of clay. I can mention John Calvin and Michael Servetus, and I will later in detail. Ulrich Zwingli and the Anabaptist. Uh, we study, we were on, working on that this morning, and Ulrich Zwingli, the Swiss reformer. And there is this, the story of this reformer he is inspiring as God worked and a supernatural work in his heart as he. I mean, it's just an extraordinary. I can't get off onto that, but uh, he's, he, he comes upon the Greek New Testament, uh, Erasmus's Greek New Testament, like Luther did. He realized this is the first time in his life he's been able to actually read the scriptures, just read the Bible, and he just goes wild, reckless, abandoned. He, can't, he memorized vast portions. Of the, he taught himself Greek so he could read the Greek New Testament. And then he memorized vast portions of the New Testament. And, uh, well, it went on from there. However, Zwingli was believed in the infant baptism to a point, uh, to a fault. And there were those who were part of the Reformation who were known as Anabaptists. Now, these were not the uh, founders of the Baptists, that's another. Baptists came up in England and later on. Anabaptists, which means rebaptizers. And they believed that the only legitimate, legitimate baptism was adult baptism by immersion, or baptism in response to belief. This did not sit well with Zwingli, nor with Calvin, nor with Luther. But the uh, short story is that Zwingli was so set against these people. And some of them had been his good friends that he participated in taking them down to the Limit River there. Beth and I have walked up and down by that river and looked at that spot. The Limit River there in Zurich where um, Zwingli had one of his, his better friends was taken down to the water and given a baptism from which he didn't come up. And, uh, and many thousands of Anabaptists gave their lives because they believed in believers' baptism by immersion. Well, this is going to give you some pause. What is this? Do we throw everything out? They say, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, the old saying is. What do we do? How to respond? Well, you know, we do have warnings in Scripture about stumbling, don't we? Um, <clears throat> though these, are, these have different, treat different aspects of stumbling, Matthew 5, 29 and 30, what do you do if your eye causes you to stumble? <laughs> what do you do? You pluck it out. And 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 13, James in chapter 3 and verse 2, and then the passage I read in Romans 14, 21. Now, I'm going to move with uh, 
try to move with some steadiness here and get through these uh, statements that I want to make to give you, I think, can be some helpful principles in working to unravel this, deal with this. I'm not saying these are going to help you explain away bad behavior, but know how to cope with it, how to deal with it. And why did I say this address the young people especially? Because in your future, that you're going to encounter disappointments. Not that we older people don't and still do, <laughs> believe me. It's a different kind of disappointment. But that you're going to come upon, you're going, there are going to be circumstances in which someone you respected, revered, you trusted, and they, they, you found this sin, this something that was just uh, incompatible with what they had professed, and it's devastating. It floors you. <laughs> what do you do with it? So I present this to you, and I hope these will be of help. And then if I can push right along, if you want to have some questions and discussion, we can do that. So let's, let's go to it. <clears throat> to have feet of clay, number one, is a danger sign is a danger sign to warn us not to idolize any man or woman, whether living or dead, except Jesus Christ. Get this, get this. Oh, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Now, the context in which the writer of Hebrews says that is looking back to those, that hall of faith in chapter 11. There are those that have gone before us who live faithfully. But that doesn't mean that they didn't even have feet of clay on occasions when you look back through that list. But what the writer of Hebrews reminds us of is looking to Jesus and This is what helps to protect you from disillusionment. Keep your heart enthralled with Christ and Christ alone as the one who saves, the one who keeps. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the starting place, loving Christ. Secondly, to have feet of clay serves as a caution to us that we may have other, we or they, (laughs) may have other spots. I'm going to interchange my pronouns here. Let me take the uh, he first and then the we. That serves a caution to us that he or she may have other blind spots. By that I mean the person you revere, the person you respect, the one you have on a pedestal, and then it all come crashes down. You find out something, you, you read church history. If you want to read something, I haven't told you everything. I mean, I'm even reading things, and you read I, read, I was reading Will Durant in his world history. He's a non-Christian, and uh, he's got some, he talks about the Zwingli episode, and, uh, and what Luther, I didn't get you to that, what Luther said about Zwingli when Zwingli was killed in battle. And what Luther said, and you say, oh, can you say that? Okay, back to this point. To have fetal clay serves as a caution to us that he or she may have other blind spots. In other words, 
If you revere a Jonathan Edwards or a Luther or a Calvin or a Zwingli or you fill in the blank, and maybe you've benefited from their books, from their writings, from their sermons, from the life that they've lived, well, remember this. Read with due vigilance. Read carefully. Don't accept anything. everything someone says. And don't get so attached that you set yourself up for a fall. And Christian biographies can have been notorious to being hagiographies. You know what I mean by that? That is, they just... And okay, some of it we cut our teeth when we come to Christ. Some of us, we read Christian biographies, missionaries... Justin mentioned some of those this morning, you know, David Livingston and C.T. Studd, and yeah, I had some flashbacks <laughs> to those. Then I remember the uh, deflated moment when I began to find out some of these things that weren't brought out in their biography. So this is the greatest person in the world. They get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and pray for three hours and go out and win hundreds of people to Christ during the day, and they do this all the time, and they suffer hardships. They're just amazing. They're incredible. Oh, my God, help me to be something like that. And then you find out later. Actually, I had some people like that. Um, I know them personally. But I remember one man on radio who had a tremendous impact on my life as a young Christian. I would come home on Sunday nights after church. And I would uh, lie there and listen to this, uh, this Christian. He, was, uh, he could inspire you in missions in an incredible way. I would lie there and he'd bring tears to my eyes. And it just made me, I've got to go somewhere where there are people who need Christ. That's what I want to do in my life. And I would listen to him Sunday night and Sunday night. I found out sometime later that his own personal family was just a disaster. I began to read some articles and I, oh, okay, what do we do? What do we do? Churches, Christian organizations, schools even with feet of clay. I mean, <laughs> we can pull this out. And so often they're not, a, they, not what they appear to be. Compromises, cover-ups. So, you know, you can even be that attached to a Christian organization um, or even to a church, to this church, to the point where it could almost be idolatrous. And then there is a disappointment and you stumble. Number three. To have feet of clay makes us marvel that God uses any of us. We need to know our own besetting sins. Do you know yours? I know, I know mine. I do. I know all of them. Okay, uh, <laughs> we get surprises. Uh, so don't don't be too quick to point fingers. Ponder your own life. Ponder the seasons of ignorance, insensitivity to sin, rationalizations of bad behavior, justification of wrongdoing, bad theology learned and lived. And I've known some situations where feet of clay have been constructed that way by a theology that was flawed, that was preached, and people followed it. And then they, well, it, just marvel, Lord, that you've, I think, Lord, that you've used me, uh, that helps to keep me to remind myself, you've done this, you've done that, a person thanks me for this part I had in their life, and their lives, people who've come, Lord, your grace, thank you, Lord. Number four, 
To have feet of clay alerts us to the nature of Christian sanctification. You know, we may be doing well in five areas and failing in a sixth. Some, you've heard perhaps the statement where you, the grass may be, uh, the weeds may be growing up in an area where you hadn't seen, looked. And sanctification has blank spots, so as knowledge has blank spots. So simply because we're maturing and growing in grace doesn't mean that all areas are evenly cut. If you may allow me to press the metaphor, we may have been cutting the front yard, but we haven't handled the backyard, and it's there. And so search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, 23, and 24. I would offer at this point this as a healthy, I can do this, I wouldn't say necessarily need to do it every day, but it can be a helpful thing. And it would be to visit those seven deadly sins. So what are they? Well, the church through history has uh, been knowledgeable of these to the point where, for example, Martin Luther, uh, when he would go to confession, this was in his pre-Eureka moment time when he was still working fingers to the bones to try to uh, create his righteousness to be accepted by God. He would go to confession and up to five and six hours. But he would start out, and the routine was, you go through the seven deadly sins, then you go through the Ten Commandments, so you start stirring up the water to confess sin. Seven deadly sins, gluttony, lust, greed, pride, sorrow, uh, wrath, vainglory, sloth. Um, I'm going to leave it up to you to do the work. I would suggest that what you could do is just take this outline, this piece of paper, eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, and fold it over and put it in your Bible and use it one day this week. And you may want to use it as part of your prayer time to say, Lord, could you search me? What is it? That, do I have some? Is there an area in my own life that's a royal mess that I have not addressed? And this became quite an issue at this point, I would say, with regard to those who have been segregationists and pastors and churches and Christian workers in the South. This is a massive issue. It was, it has been where you had well-known Christian leaders in the South and in the North as well, but who were supporters of segregation. And, I mean, in the Jim Crow laws and the awful, awful things that took place under the watchful eyes of often law enforcement officers, sheriffs and police, who were deacons in churches, Sunday school teachers, and, and what do we do? What do we do? Well, let me add a few other things to try. To, I've, I've raised a problem there. I want to go forward with it. Number five, to have feet of clay is a call to pray for light and life for the day in which we live. To have feet of clay is to call to pray for light and life in the day. What are my blind spots? And, you know, we may all share blind spots in this sense. One hundred years from now, Christians, when they look back on us, what will they think? Will they think, how in the world 
did they, generally speaking, how did those Christians, how did they miss this? Why would, this was so obvious it should have been. What could that be? Materialism? Impoverished lives? The creation of that addiction to the social media? I think that may very well become one of the things that a subsequent generation will look back on and they'll see, look at the kinds of lives that people were living addicted to the social media. It's, it's a problem, folks. You know what I heard the other day, sidebar? I was listening to a program which was giving some st- uh, stats and, th- and it was from a, uh, this was not off the wall stuff. The average millennial, that's that age group from 18 to about 32, that the average millennial checks their phone, their smartphone, how many times a day? 154 times per hour. Yes. Checking the smartphone. Checking it. Checking it. I, I, what I'm just doing is saying, lest we begin to feel self-righteous about what some others have done in the past, what are we doing with our time, with our money, the devaluation of the sacredness and dignity of human life. So, they, I quote Psalm, 100, Psalm 19, verses 12 and 13. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Number six, to have feet of clay cannot be a refuge for non-Christians looking for excuses to run from Christ. You may know some, and some of them are quite famous, and this is a favorite thing, place to go, to use those with feet of clay as an excuse to run from Christ. Now, we don't have time to pursue this. I did get into another subject area when I began to study this. say, whoa, this is opening up. Uh, It's one of those hundreds of categories in the Bible. The whole issue of stumbling block. Just get your concordance and look up the word stumbling block and it'll stop popping. 1 Corinthians 1.23, Christ was a stumbling block to the Jew. Now, was that because Jesus had feet of clay? No, that's because that those who deemed themselves righteous had feet of clay. So it's reversed. Galatians 5.11, Paul speaks of the stumbling block of the cross. In 1 Peter 2.8, a stone of stumbling referring to Christ and rock of offense. And then that grand passage in Romans chapter 9 where Paul speaks to the Jews that that's stumbling over the stumbling stone. So that's a little bit of a reversal. But... Unbelievers have no excuse. Are they stumbling over Christ? Or are they stumbling by their, is their, is their stumbling because they have found what they think is a convenient excuse to run from Christianity? Unbelievers can find no refuge there. You're not, God's not gonna, you stand at the great white throne judgment and he said, you would not believe the colossal hypocrisy that I observed among Christian people around me. Do I get a free pass? 
no. To have feet of clay, number seven, to have feet of clay is created by multiple recipes. How does this come about? Would you, would you and I be guilty of, now we're developing feet of clay and not know it. What would these recipes be? Self-indulgence? Wrong impressions that I'm giving that I'm not aware of? But I may be so full of myself that I don't have to take time to stop and think. Willful sin, areas of weakness, cultural blinders. A marriage where the love is being leached out, it's gone out of this marriage. Many a marriage has left a serious stumbling block to the children. The children of parents who have made professions and go to church and do pious things and speak holy talk, God talk. And all and on and on, Christian workers and children live in a house and they see the things that contradict all that. It's God forbid. And so the passions of youth and how those things, pastors who chase off some after some lady in the congregation, which my wife and I heard about just in the last year of a church that we have good friends who attend there and this young pastor Fresh from seminary, was doing Bible exposition, just a promising future, and the people enjoyed him. And then we got that call. Sad news to tell you, he had, had it was uncovered that he had an affair with a woman in the church, and everything just blew up, gone. Oh my, oh my! But then I should say this as well, and add this: Luther. How in the world did Luther come to this place where he said what he did about the Jews? This is no excuse, mind you. He said these things just a few years before he died. He died in 1546. One of the things that you would notice, though, about that time and when he did this, he was older. He died at age 63, but that was very old at that time. And physical infirmities. I have a note here, just older people. How older people can end up creating stumbling blocks because they're either poorly prepared themselves for the difficulties, the problems that come with aging, and physical problems, and so on, and can say and do things that can be a, a stumbling block to those who've revered them and respected them. And then, of course, Zwingli and his views on infant baptism, and I will this... With all due respect to my friends who believe in infant baptism, the Reformers fought viciously for it, and Zwingli literally so, because they saw it as a useful political tool to keep the Protestant church together in the face of Catholicism. And it was an important part of keeping the Holy Roman Empire glued together, infant baptism, because it put you in the church as an infant. And then there is Calvin, and what can we say? Calvin and Michael Servetus. Michael Servetus, he was from Spain. He was a notorious heretic. He was brilliant, a soft-spoken man, but a heretic nonetheless. He did not, he could not believe in the Trinity. He fled from Spain and thought that he could certainly find a refuge in Geneva. Thought Calvin would take him under his wings and protect him there. But the civil authorities in, in, in Geneva... They took, uh, Michael Servetus was put under arrest, and he was convicted. And now the civil authorities, yes, the, the city town council, they condemned him to death. 
And yes, Calvin thought he would uh, could offer some help by saying, well, let's don't burn him at the stake, let's just behead him because he's dead quicker that way, more quickly. And But Calvin did read, create the charges to be brought against Michael Servetus, and they burned him at the stake. But it's got to be taken in context because Catholics and Protestants did this. I mean, they took their doctrine very seriously in the 16th century, and that heretics were subject to capital punishment. Not to excuse Calvin, but someone, uh, I read this, that on that spot there in Geneva where Servetus was burned at the stake, there's a little marker there, and on it it says, Calvin was a son of his times. A warning. How our culture, the, the, the beliefs, the assumptions that we can embrace uh, can put us in this position. Number eight, spiritual ruin can be experienced by those who are poisoned by the disillusionment associated with feet of clay. Spiritual ruin, I'm speaking now to those who do succumb, who do have someone they revere, respect, trust, and so on. You know, Jesus said in John 10 or 11 and verse 10, anyone who walks in the night, he stumbles stumbles in 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who were guilty of spreading what Paul referred to as gangrene, false teaching, probably teaching that the resurrection was not a literal resurrection, but simply something, an allegorical kind, a spiritual resurrection. And he says they upset the faith of some. So spiritual ruin can become a cherished excuse to continue living in unbelief and dying without Christ. It's possible here for an unsaved person. A person who he or she think, they think they're believers, and they are associating with the church, associating with Christians, and they use, they use the fall of someone, the person of a feet of clay. They use that to embrace their own continued excuse-making and die without Christ. It's a danger, the most serious kind. Spiritual ruin can be, a, can be a good conscience that becomes corrupted. A Christian can corrupt his or her own conscience. So a respected person falls. I've seen this happen. Church, say a pastor who falls in, in some, some way, either through embezzlement or through anger or through uh, immorality, lust. And then there can be those in the assembly, or at least within earshot, become aware of it, who are not on very sure footing anyway in terms of their own convictions and progress in the faith, and who can use that as an excuse for their own immorality. Spiritual ruin. I pause and just say, be careful, be careful, my friend. If there is something of this that's eating at your own soul, Maybe you do carry some kind of bitterness to the point, you know, someone who's disappointed you, a Christian, someone that you trusted, and there can be some bitterness that's working its poison in your own soul, and you could very well be on your own track to spiritual ruin before you know it. It's the old, uh, it's the thinking that you have the moral high ground because you see someone who committed a heinous sin, as you judge it, and so, therefore, you think that gives you a little license, a little wiggle room. 
and to indulge in other sin. And number nine, and finally, the potential for person, the potential for personal feet of clay can be resisted by spirit-driven, Bible-rich, God-seeking, and Christ-centered living. Take this very seriously, please. Psalm 119, 165, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make, nothing can make them stumble. Shalom is promised to those who are enthralled with God's law. Proverbs 3.23 Keep sound wisdom and discretion then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. Jude 1.24 Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. 1 John 2.10 Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Oh, let's don't give cause for stumbling. To anyone. This is one of my regular prayers. God help me. I pray Lord. Don't let me do anything to cause others to stumble. Protect me. God. Please. John 16.1. That you may be kept from stumbling. Jesus said that in that upper room discourse. He's saying this to the disciple. I have said all these things to you. To keep you from falling away. I summarize it by saying these three things. First of all, we will sin. So this is not saying, don't sin. You, get feet, you, you have feet of clay if you sin. I'm not saying that. We will sin, but we do not have to embrace patterns of disobedience. But we can pursue spirit-enlightened self-awareness. Seek that. Open my eyes, Lord, that I may see Wonderful things from your law. And that doesn't mean simply just raw biblical knowledge. It means that the Spirit of God will do His work of illumination to give us some awareness. Now, sometimes that awareness has to be brought by an outside um, event, a person. I'll come to that next. We've been given the grace of confession of sin and the opportunity to change. Disordered love does not need to be a chosen way of life. So any moment, any point in time, if I see a pattern in my life that I realize that if this gets out, I'm seen to have been a person with a feet of clay, not sinless, but that I have been living a life that's going to be, and when this gets out, it's going to be a disaster. It's going to create a lot, a potential stumbling block for a lot of people. And feet of clay observed in others is a call to self-examination. What do we see? When you see something in the paper, when you read a magazine, when you see something that comes across the Internet, and, boy, things get around, around the world in a few seconds. So I summarize with those three statements. And all for this, too, I was listening to a discussion on radio the other day, so another providence, and it was discussing some political figures, and my, this happens a lot in politics, doesn't it, <laughs> As in the rest of life. But do the flaws in a person's life negate his or her assets to the human race? That's as far as, that, as this person was discussing it. So you have to do some weighing out. But I would expand it and say, do the flaws in a person's life negate his or her 
assets in the church, to his or her family, there will be flawed change makers. No excuse, and God judges. But this is to temper us so that, what does Scripture say? Judge not that you be not judged. That is, do some self-judgment on the matter. 